Hello, this is Doug Lewis. I've been asked to give my testimony today, and so I will just proceed in a sequential manner. I guess to begin, I should tell you that I am 60 years old. I lived 17 years in Norfolk, Virginia, then three years in Lexington, Virginia, then a year in the Coast Guard, four years in New York City, two years in Austin, Texas, three years in Mexico, a year in Colorado, four years in Canada, two years in Spokane, Washington, a year in Boston, 20 years in Raleigh, North Carolina, one year in Ferndale, Washington, and now I am leaving for Israel. So I've had a bit of a varied background biographically and geographically, and I guess the best place to begin is back in the beginning. I was born in Norfolk, Virginia in May of 1940. I was born to a Jewish family, and both my mother and my father and all of my grandparents were traditional Jews, and so this was the only world I knew as I was growing up. I was not allowed to have Christian uh, friends because Jewish families don't generally permit that. And so all of my friends were young Jewish boys and Jewish girls in the 40s in Norfolk, Virginia. When I was six years old, I remember going to Meadowbrook Elementary School and facing for the first time religious uh, persecution or at least ostracism. I can remember kids uh, saying things like, Jewish boy or Jewish Dumbo because I was a little boy with big ears and things like that. I remember my father telling stories about uh, signs on the uh, yard, the grass in Norfolk, Virginia back in the 40s, which had signs that said Jews keep off. And so it was a world of racial segregation and religious prejudice. But that was the world that I knew. My father was an attorney and I was raised in a fairly uh, comfortable lifestyle, and yet as I got to be 12 years old, I was approaching the, the age when one makes a decision whether to be bar mitzvah or not. In the Jewish tradition, bar mitzvah, which stands for, or it's Hebrew for the son of the commandments is a ceremony in which a boy is admitted into a minion. A minion is a group of 10 Jewish men, all of whom have been bar mitzvah or gone through the initiation ceremony or the, uh, the Jewish ceremony of being trained in Hebrew, how to read the scripture. And then from then on, uh, you can read the Torah, read the scriptures. And so, I had been hearing about bar mitzvah, and I thought that maybe I would like to be bar mitzvah. I asked my father and mother if I could go through the bar mitzvah preparation, and although in our synagogue there had not been uh, many bar mitzvah in the past history, they spoke to Rabbi Stern, and the rabbi agreed that he would be willing to train me. So from my uh, year 12 until I was 13 years old, while I was still at Meadowbrook Elementary School and then going into Granby High School, I was uh, going through the bar mitzvah preparation in the afternoons. When I was 13 years old, I was bar mitzvah, and I can remember 
at that time wondering what was life all about and why was the uh, the the Jewish faith what was it really all about what what was there to it in the bar mitzvah preparation I learned how to read Hebrew but really not so much understanding the readings as just reading the prayers, learning how to say the prayers, learning how to chant the prayers. And it was supposed to have a great spiritual significance, but it it wasn't really satisfying something deep in my being. Nevertheless, I, I was looking for more meaning, and I went all the way through the bar mitzvah ceremony, and at the age of 13, I was bar mitzvah. And I remember after the bar mitzvah was over... And the whole ceremony occurred. My mother had uh, a reception on our lawn, our backyard at the house. I remember thinking that it really didn't it didn't make much sense. It, it just didn't make much sense. This this was the big thing, the bar mitzvah, and now I had finished it, but I didn't feel any different. Well, life went on. I was thirteen years old now. I was fourteen years old, and. Uh, I began to be more and more attracted to my grandfather, uh, who was a much more religious Jew. He was uh, he was one who studied the Talmud, and he and I would have talks sometimes. And I remember sort of probing him. I didn't get very far in the way of answers, but it just seemed like somewhere there was something deeper that he knew or that he was searching for, as opposed to my father, who was very much into his law practice. By the time I was 15 years old, I seemed to have gotten disenchanted totally with finding any satisfaction in Judaism. Going to the synagogue uh, was more of a just an empty ritual that was happening. I'd sit in temple, and uh, my mother and father would talk about uh, the other people who were there, the uh, other ones in the congregation, and who gave this much and who gave that much and so forth. And so I was very much uh, disillusioned with Judaism. And by the time I was 15 or about 15 years old, I rejected Judaism as having anything really to offer. At the same time, my father had occasionally had me listen to Christian radio programs, sort of in a joking way or a mocking way, and listening to the radio programs where the different Christian uh, uh, um, evangelists would make a plea to send money in. It was like every program was sort of a a money pitch, Uh, send money to save the starving ones in Africa or to support this or to support that. And so I came to the conclusion that Christianity was just about as empty and uh, offered as little satisfaction as Judaism did. So I can remember about the age of 15 thinking that the only thing that really made sense was just my studies. And I gave myself very diligently to study. I uh, dove into, I was a student by nature. I enjoyed classes, enjoyed studying, enjoyed mathematics, enjoyed languages, enjoyed literature, graduated from high school with honors, and then went to, uh, went to college. I graduated in 1957, and because my father had connections with the different uh, uh, p- politicians in Virginia, he helped me secure a good uh, an entry into Washington Lee University, the goal of which was to enter Washington and Lee Law School, 
and I was on a track which was pretty much laid out for me. I would join a Jewish fraternity, uh, not so much because of religion, but because it's what you were supposed to do, and I was admitted to ZBT fraternity, entered college full of uh, expectations that this would really satisfy, and I can remember uh, going through a couple of years and not being satisfied at all. Something was just, uh, I don't know, it was, it, was, it was moving me to, to look for satisfaction and not find it. The grades were fine. I was making good grades. I was a, uh, actually, I was quite a, quite a good student. But there was just a gnawing emptiness. And somewhere after my junior year, or in the midst of my, I think it was the first, at the end of my first semester of my junior year, I quit college to join the Coast Guard. I thought, well, maybe there would be some more meaning if I left the academic world because the, the college scene was, was also empty and vain. Classes were, were meaningful to a sense. The fraternity, fraternity life was, was just really empty. And all these young ones around you, they were all from uh, wealthy families or intellectually stimulated fam- family, families. And, and yet I didn't seem to have the happiness or the satisfaction that they seemed to have, the other kids around me, or at least maybe they faked it. So I quit, quit college to see if I could find out what life was like in the military. And I joined the Coast Guard. Uh, that was in, I think, November of... 1959 when I entered the Coast Guard and stayed there until I was about 20 years old and came out on a reserve program, went back into my academic studies at Washington Lee in Lexington, Virginia, finished my junior year and got early admission into law school uh, on what they call the 3-3 program. So now I was moving on a regular career track that I would finish my senior year in undergraduate school at Washington and Lee, and I would also finish my first year of law school at Washington and Lee simultaneously, and this would, this would uh, move me further along and move me faster. Except that law school didn't seem to satisfy. I entered law school, and law school also seemed to be empty. Something wasn't, wasn't right. I remember... It was in the spring of 1961 that I took a trip to Alaska on spring break with my brother, and we uh, did a very fast run to Alaska and back to see if we could do something exciting as youngsters do. Got back uh, having missed too many classes, and I was asked to give up that semester's credit at Washington and Lee. I sort of took that as a a way to redirect my life, and I applied for admission to Columbia University in New York and decided I would start over again. I would not pursue law. I didn't think law was going to be what I wanted to give my life to. So now I'm in New York City, the big city. It's uh, 1961. I'm at one of the best schools in the country, Columbia University. It's an exciting world. I'm 21 years old. I have to do another two years there. I start taking advanced courses in the world literatures. And I got deep into philosophy and literature, uh, literatures of the different countries, Russian literature and Spanish literature, French literature, German literature. I was intrigued with the, the, thought, the deeper thoughts of the uh, great writers of the ages. 
and I thought that I would proceed on this path to become a professor of literature. I graduated uh, from Columbia University in 1963 and then continued there for my master's program. And I was moving along now a graduate program in uh, comparative literatures. By the time I was 25 years old in New York, I was married the first time because I've been married more than once. And after finishing the master's program, I moved to Austin, Texas, and uh, began work on my doctorate. Everything was going uh, well, I guess you might say. My grades were very high, but there was a gnawing emptiness inside of me that just kept, kept, uh, kept coming back again and again. My marriage basically fell apart during the period of time that I was in Austin, and eventually in April of 1967, I left uh, Texas to head into Mexico to see if I could search for something that had more meaning. I'd concluded now that education was empty. I was at the end of a Ph.D. program. I had uh, strong grades and strong credits and everything was done. I was even offered a position teaching at a college in Texas if I would just finish, uh, as soon as I finished my dissertation. But I asked myself, is this what it's all about? Do I want to end up just standing like one of these professors in front of classes of students trying to convince them that I knew what it was all about and I had the wisdom of the ages when... uh, when these men teaching me didn't seem to have any more satisfaction in their lives. And so I felt that if I was really going to find any sort of meaning, I would really need to leave this whole world of the what I called the plastic society and head into Mexico, which is what I did. That was in April of 67, 1967. I began a search in, uh, or began moving through Mexico. I stayed in in Mexico all the way until uh, November of 1969. I wandered through the jungles. I was attracted to the deeper parts of Mexico where the primitive peoples lived. I lived with some Mazatecan Indians and some Zapotecan Indians and some Maya Indians. And I kept uh, trying to find people who seemed to have the answer. And and every time I would hear of another Indian group or another uh, group of people who I uh, said that they knew something or had something that attracted me, and I, I lived with them. It was it was a, a period of wandering through Mexico on foot and uh, staying with these Indians or these Indians, but still trying to figure out uh, where was their real satisfaction. Back at Washington and Lee, I had taken my first course in religion. Actually, I think it was my only course in religion. It was a comparative religions course, and I remember at that time studying something about Buddhism and Hinduism and the different world religions. And so when I left for Mexico, I was at the point that I had discarded certain things in my life as possible solutions. I discarded, for example, Judaism. I discarded Christianity as phony or an imitation of Judaism. I discarded education as meaningless because I saw that it was not going to satisfy. I was clear that wealth would not satisfy. I'd, been, I'd had wealthy uh, friends around me in my early years. and Later on in uh, my college years, I saw ones 
I saw fraternity brothers. I saw some who had already gone through now one or two divorces. They were professionals. They were not happy. And I could see very clearly money would never satisfy. So I had discarded these at the time that I entered into Mexico to begin searching and wandering. But I was intrigued with the idea of maybe there was something in the Oriental religions. And so as I was wandering through Mexico, I had with me different books that I would read, different Bibles. I would be probing in the uh, Hindu Upanishads or the Buddhist scriptures or uh, something of the the life of Gautama Buddha or the Zoroastrian literature or the Quran. And I was always uh, carrying on my on my shoulder, a knapsack or a writing pouch and a knapsack, and I'd be writing and trying to make a, make some sort of a journal. Eventually, I constructed it into a novel, and I figured, well, uh, maybe maybe the answer is in just becoming a wandering writer, a spiritual seeker as a wandering writer. During those two years, I did uh, finish that one book, and by the Lord's mercy, I eventually... Uh, I never published it, and so the Lord, I think, covered me during that period so that it never got in in print. Somewhere in the midst of the time that I was in Mexico, I met my second wife and married her, and uh, she and I went through parts of the period in Mexico, the searching period, together. As I say, in... November of 1969, I came out of Mexico, she and I did together, and we moved to Colorado. In Colorado, I I was now 29 years old, I turned uh, 30 years old, lived in a log cabin. I'd learned in Mexico that the Indians seemed to have something closer to reality. At least they were simple people. They taught me leña y agua, leña y agua, which is Spanish for firewood and water. If a man has firewood and water, he's happy. And so uh, if he has firewood, he can go ahead and make a fire to cook food. If he has water, he can satisfy himself. He can even plant food and so forth. But moving through, through Mexico, I always felt that somehow it wasn't my world. Somehow I was still an observer. I lived a simple life in those years. Uh, We had very few pieces of clothing, at least the only thing we had to our name we carried on our back. But still, it wasn't absolutely mine. And I felt that that what I had learned in Mexico of satisfaction is in the simple life, not in in the advanced technological life of high society. I felt that this was valuable but that I still had to be more committed myself. I couldn't be a visitor somewhere. And so I felt that uh, I had to, uh, at least somehow I had to come closer with what I had learned. So I'm in Colorado. I'm in Colorado in 1969, the end of 1969. And I'm there until I'm 30 years old. And then I decide Canada. The United States is a degraded world. It's going down the tubes. And Canada is a more primitive world, a more uh, virgin world. I need to go to Canada, buy my own piece of property, and there I can search 
for reality. Maybe there is God. Maybe there is something in in reality, but I have to find it on my own. I have to own my own property is the way I felt. So I went to Ontario, northern Ontario, in June of 1970. That was after the winter was over. Of course, in Colorado, it was heavy snow. We lived in a log cabin. We had no electricity, of course, and that was fine because that was the way that I lived the whole uh, period of years that I was in Mexico. So living in a log cabin in Colorado was fine. And then moving from Colorado to Canada, I was able to scrape up enough money to buy 50 acres way up north in Ontario. And I started to chop some trees down and I was going to live a very simple life with Lena y Agua, chopping these trees down, build a log cabin, and there I would I spend the rest of my life. At least that's what my dream was at that time. Obviously, by the end of that summer, I hadn't built a log cabin, just using an axe. And so it was going to be cold. We heard it was going to be 40, 50 degrees below zero in that type of climate way up in northern Ontario. And so I had to retreat back to the United States. And I came back to Colorado and spent one more season or one more winter in Colorado in a rented log cabin. It was during that winter that Deborah was born. Deborah is my first child. And again, trying to live a very simple life without electricity, without any of the modern conveniences, I had also concluded that we needed to have the child at home. So we delivered uh, Deborah in the log cabin that we rented in Colorado. That was in April of 1971 when I was 31 years old. And uh, we finished out the snow season in Colorado and then I built a, a little oh, a little shed on the back of my pickup truck. And as soon as the snow was gone, we headed back towards Canada, thinking that we would uh, continue working on the log cabin. The only thing is that I had fallen in love with the mountains of Colorado. And so I headed up north of uh, Colorado to see the Canadian Rockies before heading east to get back to Ontario. And when I saw the Canadian Rockies, I fell in love with them. They were even more dramatic than the Rockies in the United States. And I told, uh, told her that I thought that if we could only find property here, it would be even better. So that's what we did. We started looking around, and we were able to find a big tract of land, 50 acres of land in the middle of a provincial forest up in the, uh, in the Valhalla range of mountains in British Columbia. And now I determined that uh, this is where we were really going to stay. We'd let go of the property up in Ontario. We'd stay in this uh, property in British Columbia. Uh, I was a little less primitive and more desperate to make it work this summer. And so I used a chainsaw and I built the log cabin uh, in British Columbia. And we were snug and in, in tight by the time the snow came. And so we were ready to begin a real life there. That was in 1971. We stayed there, 71, 72, 73, uh, and into 74. We stayed on top of that mountain, and a lot of things happened while we were there. First, I set myself to a, uh, a set of disciplines. I felt that if I could go ahead and get my life in tune with the seasons, if we could just align our life with the seasons, we would have time for uh, finding reality for coming into whatever spiritual reality there was. 
I had concluded that the only way a man was ever going to find out anything about God, if there was a God or anything about spiritual reality, if there was spiritual reality, if there was some meaning beyond the plastic world, would be on a mountain. I remember about Moses being on a mountain and Abraham being on a mountain. I had heard or I had read about the Tibetan monks being on a mountain. And so in my jaded way of thinking, the mountain was necessary. And so now I owned 50 acres on top of a mountain in British Columbia. We were 75 miles into the wilderness. We had to snowshoe down the mountain to get out once the snow would come. But this seemed to be the ideal world. And in a sense, it was. It was gorgeous. Uh, There were seven springs on the property. It was on the side of the mountain. There was a uh, creek that ran alongside I built the cabin. We would look out uh, across the mountains onto the other range, the other peaks around in the in the in, in the range we were in, and the other range across the way, and it was very beautiful. We set about planting. I well, the first year we just barely got everything done, got enough wood cut so we could uh, stay there for the winter because we had been told that once the snow comes, you'd not be able to get out until maybe as late as April or May. And so we spent that summer building the cabin. Uh, We got enough food stored up. We built a root cellar to store food for the spring, I mean, to to go take us all the way through the spring. And then we made it all the way uh, through when the snow started to come. The snow came somewhere around October, mid-October, the snow would start to come at a fairly good rate until it it just kept stacking up higher and higher. Eventually, it covered the windows of the cabin, and eventually it went up to the roof of the cabin, and the cabin was under snow. I cut a hole or two holes in the ceiling or the roof of the cabin and put a skylight there so we could get light in there, and then that's where we stayed in that cabin all winter. To go out, you'd have to go out on snowshoes, and uh, we pretty much decided that we would be self-sufficient. Once every six weeks or so, I might snowshoe down the mountain. It'd be a round trip of a full day's trip, and so we wouldn't do it often. I had a couple of dogs, and I had a small dog team that I could uh, uh, hook up to a sled that I built a little box for uh, for Deborah, the baby. She was, I think, let me see, she would have been one or about a year, a year and a half old at the time. And we made it through that first First year, fine. Then came the spring. The snow was melting. It was about April or May, probably, when the snow was all gone. And then we started to go ahead and till the the ground and plant seed to take us through. And, And then the sequence would go from planting in the spring to cultivating and watering during the summer and then harvesting in the fall gathering enough firewood, storing all the harvested vegetables in the root cellar, and then being ready for the long winter. And the winter was a period that was now free for spiritual research. And so what I began to do, even from the first winter, was to spend that, those, those days on a, on, a, on a discipline, getting up in the morning, going out early, maybe uh, sitting cross-legged, practicing different types of uh, of yoga exercises or different type of meditation exercises. I was always reading one or another of the different Bibles that I had with me because 
I went through the uh, all the major religions of the world. I had uh, the, the Bibles of them with me. So this is the way I would be reading. I'd be reading and then practicing and trying to to find what what reality there was, what real meaning there was. And since you had this long winter, this would be a time for spiritual research. So the winter went through, the uh, first winter, and then that period of searching continued into 1972 and then 1973. And I remember about that time, it was in the late winter, December 72, or maybe it was later, maybe it was March or February of 73, uh, she became pregnant again, and we planned for our second child. And this one was going to be a little bit more tricky than the one in Colorado, because in Colorado, at least we knew we had a truck we could get out. But here, of course, we couldn't get out. Here, the only way out would be by snowshoe. And uh, she was pregnant at the time, and we were planning that we would deliver the child in the cabin as we had the last one. And about that time, I went out for a walk one day, put my snowshoes on, and went for a walk through the woods. And and I remember feeling very frustrated. And I remember looking up at the trees above me and, and just talking out loud, saying something like, I'm not sure if you're really there. I, I really don't think you are there. I think right now I may even be talking just to the trees. But if indeed you're there, if indeed you're really there and you're God, you should be able to prove it to me because I've gone as far as a man can go with his mind and it's got nothing to do somehow with thinking or, or mental activity, something about faith that I don't have. But if you're God, you should be able to do it to me. And I can remember talking like that to the trees and stopping and waiting. And I don't know what I was waiting for. Maybe I was waiting just for a thunderbolt or something to come down. And I paused and waited. And then all of a sudden, up above me in a tree, there was a squirrel that went chattering away. Oh, it was like you know how a squirrel does? Sometimes when he hears a sound, he gets angry. And I thought, that's it. That's it. God spoke to me. And I was all excited. I really had a, a real experience. I'd heard God speak, and I was excited, and I ran back into the cabin, and I told her that I heard God. But, of course, a couple of days later, I realized that I had just been playing games with my mind, and that was nothing more than a squirrel that wasn't God. But what I realized in later years was that God heard that. That's a challenge. That's a prayer. That's a command, if you will. And he loves that type of command because he heard that and he didn't forget. Well, time went on and it was a couple months later, I believe, when it was time for the baby to be born. And again, we were prepared uh, for this child. Uh, We went through the night But at one point, again, I remember being uh, concerned and then afraid. And I went outside and tried to talk to, I don't know, to the sky, to the stars. Went back in the cabin. The baby was born fine. That was my son, Daniel. And that was uh, in March of 1970, in April of 1973. Everything came out fine. And time went on. 
It was a couple months later, and the snow started to go away, and again we prepared planting for the following year, and we went through the next season. September came again. The root cellar was stocked. October came. November we moved into December of 1973, and then we entered 1974, still under snow. And one day, in March of 1974, I'm in the cabin, and as my habit was, at the end of my morning exercises, these uh, meditation exercises or yoga exercises or readings, I would go in and I would sit at my typewriter and I would continue to write these journals that I was tracking everything on, the spiritual research. And so I was sitting there that day in my cabin, typing away at the typewriter. And then all of a sudden, from the other room, I heard a horrible scream. It was a horrible, horrible scream. And I raced into the room and then I saw what was happening. The other room was a kitchen. It was a large kitchen that I had built, and there was a potbelly stove in the middle of the kitchen, and then there was also another wood stove for cooking alongside of it, and then by the wall opposing the potbelly stove, there was a table that I had built into uh, against the wall, and on the table that day, the baby, Daniel, who was now 11 months old, was in his diapers, and he was there, and his mother was getting ready to wash clothes. Now, the way she washed clothes at that time was she would take a five-gallon bucket, and she would go over to the far wall, and she would draw ice water. All the water was ice, icy because it was wintertime. And, and so she, to heat the water, she would take the five gallons of icy water and she would put it into the potbelly stove in the middle of the, of the uh, kitchen and wait until it boiled. When the water was boiling, she would take the five-gallon bucket of boiling water and she would then go over to the table alongside the window. And then on the floor at the bottom, uh, below the table, she had a big scrub pail she would pour the five gallons of boiling water into the scrub pail, and then she'd go back to draw five, draw some more cold water, and then come back with the cold water, blending it with the cold water till it was the right temperature to where she could then start scrubbing her clothes. That day, apparently, she had gone through the first step. She had got her five gallons of boiling water. She had poured it into the scrub pail, which was at the foot of the table where the baby was on top of the table. She had gone back to get the second cold water to come and mix it with the boiling water, and apparently the baby had crawled to the edge of the table and seen or heard the boiling, bubbling water down below and had fallen into the scrub pail where the boiling water was, and that was the screaming. And I raced into the room, and as I race in the room, this is what I see in front of me. I see the baby splashing around in all of this boiling water. I see the mother standing there screaming and screaming and screaming at the baby, and I see my daughter standing alongside uh, my wife screaming and screaming, and the screaming was at a crescendo of, uh, that, that was like echoing throughout the cabin, and everybody was frozen just screaming. 
and I raced in and quickly reached down, grabbed him, and pulled the baby out of the boiling water and did the very thing that I was told in later years was the worst thing that I could do. Because he had on him, he had a diaper, and he had a uh, one of these little baby T-shirts with the long sleeves on it. And I quickly ripped the T-shirt over his head, pulled it off his arms, and as I did so, the skin on his arms just sort of stripped and bunched down along the arms and at the wrist and everything. It was a horrible thing. And I realized in later years that what I should have done is I should have raced outside immediately in the snow and packed him in snow. But I did what I did. And then I've got this bloody baby in my hand and I'm standing there. I'm standing there and the baby is screaming and screaming. He's all bloody. He's only 11 months old and so he's quite small. And she's standing there next to me screaming. And the, my daughter's standing there next to me screaming. And there's just this, 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 this noise. And I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I had, I'd been all these years building this, this world of what I thought was a spiritual search. And here, they're looking at me for the answer. I've been the doctor and I've been the carpenter and I've been the adventurer, and I've done all these things to uh, go in a certain direction, and I realized that I had nothing. I had nothing at all that I could do. And I remember at that moment, standing there, and all of a sudden, something caved in inside of me. It just felt like it was all breaking inside of me. It was the most helpless, helpless feeling. Everything, it's like I'd gone out so far on a limb and the limb was cracking underneath me. And I didn't know what to do. If I left to go outside the cabin and try and go down the mountain, it was sub-zero weather, he would probably freeze to death. If I stayed inside the cabin, he would die. And I, I didn't know what to do. Finally, after a moment's hesitation or a few minutes pause, I gave in and I told her, I said, I'm going down the mountain, get my knapsack. And she got my knapsack. She took the baby, she wrapped him in a sheet, stuffed the baby inside the knapsack, put the knapsack on my shoulders. And then she got a a big serape. That's one of the old uh, Mexican, uh, they're like a blanket with a hole in the middle. And I'd used it for the years that I had wandered through Mexico. And she put the, uh, the, the, the serape, like a, it's like a giant poncho, if you will, put that over my head, which covered the knapsack so that everything was insulated. She got my snowshoes for me, lashed my snowshoes on, and I set out down the mountain with the baby screaming on my back. What happened next, I really don't understand. There are two types of snowshoes. You can have the snowshoe, which is the traditional one, which has the long tail that comes behind it that you see on the flat grounds, and they're great for going uh, very long distances very rapidly. You can also have another kind of a snowshoe, which is what we call a bear paw, and the bear paw has no tail on it, and it's designed for... Uh, the woods for uh, terrain, which is rolling hills. And the kind of country that we lived in up in those mountains required you to use the bear paw snowshoes. And that's what I was wearing that day when I set off down the mountain. 
The only thing about the bear paws is that you can't race like you do in the other with the other kind of snowshoes. With a bear paw, you have to because they're round instead of long. You have to throw one foot around the other to clear it from bumping the the other snowshoe. And so to get any speed, you throw one foot to the right, and then you throw the other foot to the left, and you throw the other foot to the right, and you throw the other foot to the left. And what I was doing, racing down that mountain on those snowsho- those bear paw snowshoes, I started to throw my feet like that, and for the strangest reason, I started to call, Jesus, 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 just like that. I don't know why I did it. I really don't know why. I've wondered many a time in the past years why I actually used the name Jesus. Because as a young Jewish boy growing up in Norfolk, Virginia, Jesus was a name that would never be said, never be allowed to be said in a home. And then later, having discarded Christianity as an answer, Jesus was not a pleasant name. It was a name that I would not have all have been attracted to. But for some reason... I start racing down this mountain, throwing one foot around the other and racing and calling, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the baby is screaming on my back and I'm racing through the woods down the mountain in that condition. The screaming was intense back of my head where he was on on my back. And I remember everything uh, in sort of like a, a, a haze as I'm racing through the woods. Every six weeks, I would go down the mountain to get the mail, approximately every six weeks, and I knew the route very, very well. It was the better part of, oh, I think it was several hours on a leisurely trip to go down the mountain on snowshoes. I remember that you'd go down. If I wanted to go down and get the mail, I would leave after breakfast, and I'd come back and make sure that I didn't tardy too much because I wanted to be back before dark. But I knew the trail very well, and there was one particular point where the trail came out and made a bend, and there was an opening in the woods, and you could look across the mountains. And that was a spot that I used to sit at and sort of uh, take a a rest when I was going down for the mail. This particular day, I'm racing through the woods, shouting, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The baby is screaming, and I come out to that one particular spot, and there I am, right at the break in the woods, And I stop to get my breath, and I'm breathing, and it's right there at that very moment that God came over me. God came over me and entered into me. And I'll never forget, it was like like he was a warm wave coming across me and then entering me and moving through me. And then I heard the voice And the voice came out of my throat and out of my mouth, but wasn't my voice. And the voice said, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And at that moment, I didn't care. I didn't care anymore. It was like I couldn't believe what was happening. God had entered into me. The God of the universe that I'd been looking for, that I'd wandered through Mexico wondering if he was real, the one that I was reading in all of the, uh, the Buddhist and Hindu books and Bibles and literatures trying to find, the God of the universe had entered into me 
and I didn't care if the baby lived or died, if I lived or died, I was actually experiencing what I, what I had looked for all these years. I continued to set off down the mountain. The miracle that happened on that day, in that mountain, on that mountain, for many people was the most amazing thing. But there were more miracles that the Lord had in in store for me. I raced down the mountain, still calling, but now I'm calling, Jesus, 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 Jesus. I I was like a lunatic. I was like a man in another world. The baby's still crying, but I'm like in ecstasy. And I continue down the mountain, come out of the woods, and there as I come out of the woods... There's a man waiting for me. When you're living in that kind of condition, a mountain man alone, you don't shave. And so your whiskers get long, and my whiskers were quite long. I hadn't shaved for many, many years now. And when you're breathing heavy in icy conditions, and you've got whiskers on your face, then you develop icicles from your whiskers. And so I came out of the woods with all these icicles coming off of my face with a big what looked like a hunchback on my back because the baby was in a knapsack that was covered by a serape and I see this man standing there in the clearing and I race over to him on my snowshoe shouting baby baby pointing at my back and the man in fear puts his hands up as if I'm coming at him and starts to back away until eventually I make him realize I've got a baby on my back he quickly put me into his pickup truck and he starts to race down this mountain road to the nearby town of Nacusp. Nacusp is a little mountain village in British Columbia. It had a population of about a thousand people. I don't recall if there was a paved road in Nacusp, but there was a little hospital, uh, a one-story wooden building, and he's racing me to get me to this hospital. I just remember as we're racing down the road in his pickup, I'm telling him, oh, I know who sent you. I know who sent you. I can't believe it. I know who sent you. And he's telling me, I don't know what you mean, mister. I don't know what you mean. Nobody sent me. I just went out to do some surveying today. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. People don't go surveying in heavy snow conditions like that. No, no. This is an angel. Jesus sent you, I said to him. He's convinced that I'm a person he wants out of his car very quickly. He gets me to this hospital. I race in the hospital. I never see the man again. But to me, to this day, I believe he was an angel that was left there for me. And that was the second miracle. I race into the hospital. I take the baby. I give him to a nurse that's waiting there. She puts him into a saline solution in front of me. And she starts to go ahead and uh, bathe him off a little bit. And she tells me that he's lost a tremendous amount of electrolytes and she's got to give him an injection to get electrolytes or his bladder will freeze and he will die. She tries to give him an injection in his wrist and she can't find a, a vein because he's too tiny. She goes to the second wrist and she still can't find one. She goes to the break in the, in, in the elbow and she can't find him. She goes to the back of the legs She goes to the second leg. 
She goes to the soft spot in his head. She's 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 punching needles in him, and to me, it's like he's like he's a he's a pincushion. Finally, she says in desperation, she's going to have to do what they call a deep cut, where she gashes his wrist and exposes the vein so she can quickly make an injection because if not, she says he will die. And at that moment, I say, no, Jesus will save him, which, of course, is not the thing that you say in the middle of a hospital. And they were convinced that they had someone that they didn't couldn't handle in, in their midst. And shortly, the hospital administrator came back with a policeman with a court order saying that they were going to override the father's wishes to save the life of the child. And I pleaded with them. I said, no, I know Jesus will save him. And as I pleaded with them, they told me they would give me until eight o'clock for his bladder to move. And if his bladder didn't move until eight o'clock, if his bladder didn't move by eight o'clock, they were going to exercise the court order to save the child's life. They gave me a room that I could wait in And I went in this private room and I tried to pray. And I didn't know how to pray. You know, if you're raised a Baptist, maybe you know how to pray. If you're raised a Methodist, maybe you know how to pray. But as a Jewish boy, all I knew, even from the days of my bar mitzvah, were Jewish prayers. The prayer that you recite, the Baruch HaTorinoi, it's called, over the bread or over the wine, the different kinds of prayers. Judaism had not given me anything. I had left that way behind. And now I have to pray, and I don't know how to pray. And I got down on my knees, and I remember just trying to talk, saying things like, please, please save him. I don't know. I don't know how to talk to you, but you can do it. Please save him and i'm i'm trying to pray and talk to god the god who now lives inside of me and i'm going on like this it was quarter till eight and right then a couple minutes before eight o'clock the door opens and the nurse says he peed he peed he peed and she's so excited and to me there's miracle number three god really is real the baby is going to make it they tell me the baby's going to live They tell me now that he will live, but he's going to be severely scarred. He's going to be scarred. He's lost 40% of his skin, they said. Uh, His groin was safe. He, uh, no, I think it was 40% of his electrolyte. 40% of his body, I think, was was burned is what it was. And, uh, but he was going to make it. He was going to live. He'd be seriously scarred, but he was going to make it, and they would give him the electrolyte solution in apple juice now and he could drink it because it didn't have to get into his bloodstream as rapidly. He would make it. He'd be seriously scarred, but he would make it and he would be in the hospital for about 14 or 16 weeks. I was ecstatic. And then what happened next was the fourth miracle. It's because within two weeks... He was out of the hospital. He was at, they said he could go with us. After two weeks, he could come out of the hospital. We stayed there. I sent uh, a friend of mine up by Skidoo or snowmobile up the mountain to go retrieve my wife and daughter. We stayed in the hospital, in that hospital bedroom, that hospital room for the next two weeks. 
We prayed a lot. And in two weeks, he was released. And if you were to look at him today, if you were to look at Daniel today, you would not know that he was seriously scarred and burned. There is a crinkle mark of burnt of, of skin that didn't heal, that didn't heal properly under one arm. You would see some discolorations on uh, on one of his arms and slightly on the second arm. His face you would not see much. You would not see anything. When he gets in a lot of sun and he's suntanned, then you can see a little bit more, but virtually no scarring. And this was the fourth miracle. And I look back now and I realize this is what it took. This is what it took for God to go ahead and prove himself to me. I was born again. I had the God of the universe living in me, but I didn't believe. I didn't have faith. And now with these four miracles, faith was in me. And I'm finding myself believing things that I never believed before, things that I thought were superstition. I couldn't believe that intelligent people believed in uh, a devil and believed in angels. And and so this was in March of 1974. And all of a sudden, I was born again. I was a new, a new person. I had someone, I had the God of the universe living inside of me. I'd like to say that that was the end of the story and God's been precious and wonderful to me ever since. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. I don't know how these things happen. Maybe it's because of living a a recluse's life up in the mountains. But that was in March of 74. And by June of 74, I backslid again. I don't know how how it happened. But somehow, I had lost a lot of what I had believed in. Maybe I felt like it was all fine now and I went back up to the mountain and everything. But in any case, she at this time wanted to go through a divorce or she, no, no, not just yet. She wanted to separate and she asked me if she could have some time alone. And so I gave her time with the children to go be by herself and I went back into Mexico, which is the world that I knew the, the most of before Canada. And in Mexico, I, uh, I continued for that month that I was there to fall back into the world. I met a, a hippie, a love child, uh, they used to call them in those days, and together for that month we wandered through Mexico. We came out of Mexico, he and I, at the end of June, and I'm in Arizona, and I called back to Canada to see if she was ready to get back together again with the children, and she told me that, uh, no, she said uh, she wanted to have a divorce, and I remember when she told me that on the phone, that it felt like I was 90 years old. I'd lived too long. There wasn't much left to live for. I'd been through so much. 
I'd been through all the years of education. I'd been through the homesteading. I'd grown food. I'd delivered babies. I'd read the Bibles of the world. I'd all these things, and I just felt old. I felt like there was nothing left. And so I told my friend Sean, whom I was with, I said, uh, I wanted to go for a walk. And so he and I went for a walk. We found this little alley where we were walking down in Tucson, Arizona. At that period in 1974, a lot of people were into crafts, including myself. Living up in the mountains in British Columbia, I had learned how to make my own clothing out of hides of animals. And so I I had what's called a leather awl. It's an A-W-L, a leather awl that we use for sewing um, moose hides and things like that into, into leather pants. I remember I had that awl in my hand that day. It's got a long needle on it that you can push through leather. And I'm sort of like holding it in my right hand, just feeling the weight. It's got a wooden handle, and Sean and I are walking down this... <coughs> We're walking down this alley, and I realize there's nothing left to live for. There's nothing left. And I'm just feeling the weight of the awl in my hand, and it's long needle, and I've decided I'm just going to commit suicide. I'm going to end it. It's just not worth it. And I'm feeling the weight of the awl in my hand, and we're walking and walking and just sort of like uh, getting ready. And just at the moment that I start to plunge it into me, I hear a voice right behind me. Sean had no idea what I was doing. And the voice behind me said, Did you know Jesus loves you? And I turned around, and there was this girl. She'd been following me and Sean down this alley. I couldn't believe it. It was as if I had been on the edge of a cliff and started to fall off, and somebody had yanked me back. And she said, Did you know Jesus loves you? I don't think she knew anything about that leather all. I don't think she knew I was getting ready to commit suicide. She was just preaching the gospel. She was a street evangelist. And she told us about the people she was with that live in tents and go from city to city preaching the gospel. She invited us to come to a revival meeting that night. So Sean and I went. We went to the gospel meeting, the tent revival. And the preacher that night was preaching hellfire and brimstone preaching salvation, preaching very strongly. And I felt like I was safe. I felt like I was home. And Sean and I talked, and he said that uh, it wasn't for him, but for me to stay there. So I remember that night, I spent most of that night, I think, on my knees, just repenting, confessing and repenting and writing things down all the things that were evil in my being, just to get them out. I stayed with those people, the tent people they were called. I stayed with them from August of 1974 until November of 74. It was a precious time. These people were ones who wandered around from city to city. They were what you would call or what they called themselves a forsake all ministry. They had forsaken all. They had sold their homes and they wandered and they lived by faith. They were a Pentecostal type of missionary or ministry. 
in which they believed in living by faith that God would provide food for them for their needs. They believed in preaching in, uh, in, in, in preaching the gospel on the streets and on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and all sorts of strange things. But none of that mattered to me except that it was just wonderful. They took me in immediately. They had a brother's tent that all the single brothers lived in. They had a sister's tent the single sisters lived in. And then they had the big evangelist tent. And then they had uh, camper trailers that the married couples drove around in. And they had a, a bookmobile bus, an old school bus, which was their library. During the days, I would go out on the streets with them, with one or two of them, and I'd preach the gospel with them. It was a wonderful period. Every day, we would find someone who wanted to be saved, either one, two, or three different people during the day, and we'd get down on our knees right there in the sidewalk, and we'd pray with them. And it it really felt like God was real, and God was doing something in a wonderful way. One day... I went into the school bus, which was the bookmobile, and I looked at the books they had there, and I found a book by a man called Watchman Nee, and I asked them, what about this book? I think I was attracted to the name as an oriental name. I believe the book was The Release of the Spirit. They told me, well, it's okay. It's a good, it's, he's a good writer. You can read him and you'll get a lot, but just don't read too much. You don't, you don't want to read too much of him. So I read and I got stronger each day as I was preaching the gospel with them. And eventually, after a few months, I felt that God was going to do a miracle now. He was going to go ahead and heal my marriage and bring my wife and children back together and we would spend our lives with the tent people wandering around the world preaching uh, salvation to the unsaved and turning back from your backslidden ways to the saved ones who had lost their salvation because this is what they, these, the tent people believed. After a little fellowship with some of the brothers and sisters there, I took off in my truck to go back to Canada. By now, my truck was different from the mountain truck that I had brought down from Canada when I went to Mexico. It was still a 4x4, a big red truck with with a a snowplow on the front that seemed strange as I went through Mexico on it, obviously, and had chains and everything. But now I had it plastered with signs on the side, Jesus is coming, Christ is your life, all kinds of, of... of decals on the hood, on the doors. I had a tape deck inside the cab with the Bible going all the time. It was the old type of tape deck and had uh, gospel tracks. Still had my beard, still wore my Mexican serape. And in this condition, I'm driving from Arizona back to Canada to see God do something wonderful. I cross the border and I get up into British Columbia. I find the cabin where she's staying and it's not the cabin of ours up in the mountain. It's down in the town of the cusp. And I go in and the cabin all ready to 
see God do a wonderful thing. And there's another guy there, a fellow with a greasy beard and guitar. And uh, they, you can see it's a very dirty, dirty situation. My two little children are in a very dirty uh, environment. My little girl runs over and says, Daddy, Daddy. And if I had been the same kind of person that I had been in the early years when I went up on the mountain, I wouldn't have done what I did because I was rather violent. I was known to be like a very angry person. I was the lone mountain man up there who was uh, sort of strange. People, when I lived up on the mountain and before I got saved, before Daniel was burned, they used to always sort of like tell people to sort of like, you know, he's just strange. You stay away from him. So I lived up on that mountain at that time, and and if this situation had been I of that period, I would have probably done something violent. But what happened was nothing rose out of me in violence. What came out was compassion, and I started to preach the gospel to this fellow and to my wife. I started to tell them how much Jesus loved them. And started to tell them how wonderful Jesus was. They took the opportunity to to tell me after listening for a while to leave and we'd talk tomorrow. I went outside in my truck, slept in the back of the truck until I was told that the police wanted to see me. And I was uh, taken downtown, so to speak, to the little uh, police station for being a religious fanatic and told to stay away from the children. Well, God wasn't doing what I thought. God wasn't reacting or doing the way that I thought it was going to work at all. And yet, I really believed that God was powerful and God was able. During the next three weeks, while waiting for the time to have visitation and visit my children, I met different Christians in the town of Nacusp. I remember there was one sweet little lady. I think her name was Bessie. She was a real prayer warrior. And I think she was probably in her late 70s or 80 years old. And I can remember going and staying in her house in the afternoons and praying away with her. And I can remember going and visiting different, uh, different churches, a Methodist church, a Catholic church. I didn't really know where to go as a home because, you know, if you're raised a Baptist and you're not saved, and you get saved, then you go back to your parents' Baptist church. If you're raised uh, a Methodist and you're not saved and you get saved, you go back to your parents' Methodist church. If you're raised a Jew and you get saved, where do you go? So after Daniel had gotten burned and I had gotten saved, as a saved Jew, I had no place to go back to, which is probably why I backslid into the world. And now here I am, my only experience of Christianity is with the tent people, and so I'm going to church after church, and it was the funniest thing. Each time I'd go into a congregation, I'd notice that there there were three kinds of people there. There were some, like Bessie, that we could talk about, oh, the wonderful Jesus, how we know him. Oh, he is so sweet, and I would love talking to them. In some of the congregations I went to, there were a fair number of them. Others, there were only one or two, but there was always somebody. And then in some of the congregations I'd go to, there were 
people who were not saved. They weren't saved at all. They were just people of the world. And they'd come to church, listen to the preacher talk, and they'd go home, maybe have a beer and watch the ball game. And then there was a third category of people. And these were ones who, when I'd talk to them or meet them, they'd say, oh, yeah, I remember. That happened to me, too, about 20 years ago, I remember. But that was the end of it. And then they'd go home and watch the ball game like the unsaved. There was no difference. There was nothing in my being that related to them, even though they were Christians. But it was this first category, the ones like Bessie, that I really, really loved. And so the different churches that I would go to that wanted me to to join, I, I couldn't join. I didn't know how to join. How do you become a member of something when you're born again? I can't become a, a member of the human race if I'm not born a human. And so to join the Baptist church or join the Methodist church or join the Pentecostal church or join the different churches, I couldn't do that. So I kept going from one to the other to the other during this period of time. There was another fellow up on the mountain who had gotten saved also. He actually, he lived down at the bottom of the mountain. His name was Blake and Blake and I used to have a good time during that period. We would, he and I would get in our car, his car or my car or my truck, and we'd drive over to Castlegar, drive across the mountains to the Okanagan, and we would preach the gospel on the streets together. And we had a good time together because he it had happened to, to him also. Well, this period goes on, and eventually I had the time to, uh, to have the first visitation when I could visit the children. And what I planned between Blake and myself We were very young Christians, obviously, and we planned that we were going to help God rescue the whole family from Satan's clutches. And the way we were going to do this was we were going to, uh, I was going to take the children when came time for visitation, and I was going to uh, run across the United States border, get into into the United States, and then uh, since they were my children, uh, it would be fine, and Blake would contact her the mother and tell her where I was and arrange a meeting place. And then she would uh, come and meet me and everything would come back together again. And we would give our lives back as a reconstructed family to Christ. That's the plan. Obviously God had another plan. We got as far as the visitation. I picked the kids up. I got in the truck and I zoomed down the highway, the opposite direction that was expected of me went down, crossed into the United States, and headed for Spokane, Washington, which is the plan that Blake and I had. I got to Spokane, Washington, and I met some uh, Christians, some dear Christians, at a congregation I went to named Brother Ray. Brother Ray was a dear Christian brother. I think his congregation may still be there. But I, I, I met them, and they offered me a house to live in, and I lived, uh, I, I, I moved into the house. Some of the members of the congregation gave me some uh, little bits of uh, pots and pans and things with the children, for the children. And I set to trying to potty train Daniel because Daniel uh, hadn't, uh, he had reverted back to where he needed to be potty trained again. Where he's now two years old. This is, uh, this is March of 1975. And to occupy myself during the day while waiting for Blake to arrange the, the uh, rendezvous, I got some books. 
I found some more books of this Chinese man, this uh, this this Watchman Nee. One book I really found that I liked called What Shall This Man Do? And another book was called Sit, Walk, and Stand. And these titles seemed to meet the condition of where I was at. And so I'd spend my days sitting in the house, reading these books, and potty training Daniel, waiting for the time to go ahead and have the, the meeting where she would come down. One day a knock comes in the door. And the person who lived across the street from the house I was staying in said, uh, I saw your truck, the big red truck that's got all those Jesus signs all over the, the doors and everything. And I go to school with a girl and told her about your truck. And she said, oh, he's one of my kind of people. Have him call me. So here's her phone number. And so I called this phone number. And I spoke to the sister on the other end of the line who told me who she was. And, and uh, we were excited. We're both Christians. And she said, uh, we have meetings sometimes. But uh, probably n- tonight's not a real good night because it's a prayer meeting. You probably don't want to come to a prayer meeting. We've got a love feast coming on Friday. And I said, oh, a prayer meeting would be great. I- I'd love a prayer meeting. So she was excited about that and said, all right, I'll come pick you up. I said, I've got two children And she said, oh, that's no problem. We'll arrange babysitting. So she and her sister came by and picked me and the kids up, took the kids off to babysitting and take me over to a house where I go in the front door and there's about seven or eight, nine people sitting in a circle and they're reading something. They're passing a piece of paper around. I'm introduced and I sit down in the circle and the paper comes to me and I read from it. And when I finish reading, I say, wow, who wrote this? And they said, a Christian brother by the name of Watchman Nee. And I said, Watchman Nee, I was just reading a book of his today. What shall this man do? And they were excited and I was excited. And we felt that this was just a miracle. And then I told them that I was waiting for uh, a phone call to see if I could find out uh, my, my wife who was in Canada somewhere to see about coming in. I told them a little bit about the situation. They introduced themselves to me. The brother whose house it was, name was Doug Higgins, and another brother in the house, name was Chris Wild, and uh, Doug had a wife, Janet Higgins, and Chris's wife, Andy Wild, and some others were at that meeting. And so they waited while I made the phone call. They had, they said I could use Doug's phone, and I called Canada to see if we could find her. And sure enough, we found her this time. Blake had located her. Uh, I forget if it was Blake or a friend of Blake's, but we got a hold of her. And then we arranged for uh, a meeting. And instead of me going back into Canada and she not having a ride, I went out and told the, the, the brothers and sisters uh, who were praying while I was making this phone call that we had actually found her. And they thought that was a miracle. They thought that was wonderful because for three weeks we hadn't been able to find her. And Doug said, well, if you would like, I could go up and get her which is a long way, it's about 200 miles, and he said that he'd be willing to drive up the next day and get her and bring her back uh, so we could have this meeting. And I said, wow, that was wonderful. And so I went and told her that, and that's exactly what happened, except he said something really strange. He said, the only thing is I need to make sure that we're back in time for the meeting that night, which I thought was sort of strange that he would be so committed to a meeting life that uh, it would take precedence over something unusual like this. But that's what happened. 
he and Janet drove up to uh, to British Columbia to, to Nacusp and picked her up and brought her back. And that was on, let's see, that was March 23rd, I think. No, March 29th. 1975. The reason I remember is because that'd be Daniel's birthday and no, it'd be April. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. April 29th, 1975. And it was going to be his birthday. So they got back with her, but there was something else happening that God was doing that I knew nothing about. And he was arranging a situation in which I was going to be captured by the church. Because what happened here was when she got back with them the next day, she arranged a situation to drive off with the children and the truck and all of a sudden they were gone and I was stranded in Spokane, Washington with no truck, no money, no children and nothing. And I was in a very, very desperate condition not knowing what to do and at that particular day not knowing anybody in town I called Doug told him what had just happened and he came over that night immediately with another brother and uh, (laughs) they told me you don't need to be alone brother they said you shouldn't be alone and what they did they moved me into Doug Higgins' house they put me right on the sofa and they took me in, in my wretched condition. These were Christians that were just pouring love out on me. I'd been stripped of everything right now and and yet they brought me in. And I found out they didn't have jobs. Doug didn't have a job. Chris didn't have a job. Both their wives were pregnant. They are living together in a corporate living environment. And here they bring me in. And I was so touched that that they were offering this kind of love to me. I was still desperate, but Doug began something interesting. He began to go ahead and take me out in the evenings over to a little diner called Casey's Diner and just talk to me. And I'll never forget those nights because... He'd go out during the daytime trying to do something. I don't know if he was trying to find a job or what he was trying to do. He'd leave me books to read. But I remember each night we'd go to Casey's and I would just talk to him and I'd say, Doug, what do I do about my kids? My kids have been taken away. And he would just draw three circles. And he'd look at me and he'd say, Brother Doug, you've got a body and you've got a soul and you've got a spirit. And I'd listen to him. And I was wondering, where is he coming from? It seemed like he was in another world. And then I'd say, well, yeah, but but what's that guy do with my kids, Doug? What about my children? And he'd come back to me and he'd say, 
Brother Doug, all I know is you've got a body and you've got a soul and you've got a spirit. And he kept trying to show me how to find my spirit. Those were precious days. That period in my life lasted almost a year. This was my entry into the church life. I had discovered the church. That was March 1975 into April 1975. And I had discovered the church, come into the church life. And during that period, we began to prepare for a custody hearing where there would be a court trial. She, my ex-wife, the mother, did not want to reconcile at all. She wanted custody of the children. She wanted to go forward with a divorce. And I was now falling more and more in love with the church life, with the ministry, with the teachings, with the hymns, with the Bible opening up. The word was becoming life. And most importantly, I began to know my spirit. And the brothers and sisters supported me uh, in all kinds of ways. I moved in with different saints during that time. It was a wonderful time. And then eventually, during that period, we found an attorney up in Canada who prepared for a custody hearing. Child custody in Canada in the 70s was a pretty simple thing as far as Canadian law. It basically had what's called the tender age doctrine, which says that children of a tender age except for extenuating circumstances, will go to the mother. And tender age is under six years old, and these children were four and two. So, it didn't look like there was going to be anything on that surface that would grant me custody, but we proceeded. And during that year, the saints prayed. The whole church prayed. It was the time of the first Hebrews training. I went down to the training and came back, and the church continued to pray. The judge in Canada, when the hearing came about, which was towards the end of February and into March of 1976, the judge wanted to know who was the group of who were the group of people that Doug Lewis was living with. Who were these people? And so he sent down uh, for an examination, for interviews, uh, different brothers and sisters in the church in Spokane. All this time, the church prayed. Linda was one of the young single sisters at that time. (coughs) And she was part, part of those prayer meetings, those prayer sessions. And eventually, it came time for the final decision of the judge on who would have custody. The trial had gone on for a long time. The custody trial had been going on now for a period of several months. They say that they had never really had a trial that had gone on that long. And all this time the church is praying. And then came the final day for the decision. And I remember reading in table in the wilderness that day where Hannah had received notice that 
she was to turn her son Samuel over to the Lord. And I wept because I realized this was God speaking to me. I had to give my son up. I had to give my daughter up and the children were going to go to custody for the mother. And that was what the Lord was requiring of me. And I couldn't do anything but weep and find a brother and asked him if he would go with me to get the news and hear the judge speak. And we did. Brother Bill and I drove up to British Columbia and we sat there in the courtroom and first her lawyer made his position about why the children should go to the mother and then next after he finished my lawyer made his position and the judge considered and the judge came back and said that he did feel that there had been a change in the father's life but he was not convinced it was permanent and therefore he would give custody to the mother and at that moment my attorney went forward and said he wanted to speak to the judge and he told him at he told him that he couldn't really make that decision because the case had been a request for him to decide no i'm wrong the decision was the mother's life was not worthy to be the mother of the children and the father's life was not completely he wasn't sure whether the father's life had totally changed that's what it was and so my lawyer went forward at that time and said your honor i don't oh and so the judge had said therefore i'm sending the children into permanent adoption that neither parent would have them that's what it was because that was the time that my lawyer went forward and said your honor i don't think you can make that decision because you've been asked to give either to the mother or to the father you can't make a third choice and then after some research of the law what happened was that the lawyer came back the judge came back and spoke to the two lawyers and said he wanted to hear from the child's lawyer and we had not known there was a child's lawyer there was an independent child's attorney that the court had sitting silently this whole period of 3 or 4 months during the trial and he's the one who said your honor i believe that the mother's life is still not suitable to be the mother of these children and i believe there has been a change in the father's life but i'm not sure it's permanent nevertheless if I had to choose one or the other I would choose the father. And with that there was an eruption of uh emotion in the courtroom and I was granted custody and my attorney got the piece of paper and told me to uh quickly go present this to the foster parents that the children were living with all this year that this trial had been going on and I grabbed the children I raced back down the 200 miles back to Spokane, Washington came into the meeting hall and right in the midst of a love feast and right there it was like the church was in victory the children had been rescued they were in uh they were out of canada they were with me and i and they were in the church life and that's the way they came in now if you were to listen to linda she would tell you at that moment she knew they were going to be something special about them because she felt 
feelings inside of her. Anyway, it was within, by the end of that year, Linda and I, first she was my babysitter, and then we got married. That was in October of 76, and Linda and I then migrated to uh, Framingham, Washington, where I hung sheetrock. Then we migrated again to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I hung sheetrock. Then Naomi was born. Naomi was born in March of 1979 in Raleigh, North Carolina. From there, we stayed. We had a wonderful church life all those years that we were in Raleigh, North Carolina. And then in 1998, we had the honor of going to Ferndale, Washington to help the brothers with a Christian radio station. We presented ourselves for full-time service. We were there for the year of 1998, went back to North Carolina, and then this year we presented ourselves to migrate as full-time working ones to Israel. Praise the Lord. The trip to Israel is, we believe, the last migration. Praise the Lord for his mercy.